0: Hey guys, welcome back to Profitable Property Management. Today's episode is with Sarah Durbin. She started PM Shops in three, four, five different cities. A lot of varied markets, a lot of uh, experience that kind of came together to give an opinion and approach on having a centralized back office and boots on the ground approach while running multiple markets. It was an interesting episode and we were able to go deep on her approach of what she feels like operationally is the secret sauce for running a well-oiled machine. I think you're going to like it. Check it out. welcome to the episode of the profitable property management podcast i'm your host jordan whalen today i'm talking to sarah durbin thanks for coming on the show happy to be here thanks for inviting me well let's go right back to the beginning to hear a little bit about how you got into property management what's your background
1: so i ran door-to-door sales companies prior to getting into property mm-hmm. management mm-hmm. Um, did con- some consulting so this was very young age 18 Single mom at the time. uh, Did that for a couple of years. Took them from three offices to 15 offices.
0: Selling what? What are you selling?
1: Uh, Dish Network Direct TV. Ooh.
0: Yep. Nice. Hand-to-hand combat.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't sell. I oversaw all the sales reps. (laughs) And, um, you know, the processes back at at the offices. And so did that for a
0: while. I'm actually really into this. I'm really into door-to-door. I feel like the connotations can be, it's annoying. Somebody is at my front door. Didn't you read the sign? I don't want to talk to you. That's like some of the experience, but from a business model perspective, not only are there a number of companies that have gotten large just doing that, or that is one of their acquisition channels. I've also seen companies that have, um, crossed from an entirely online experience for example and gone into door-to-door and really flipped their business model using that as a distribution strategy what can you tell us around about what that industry is is like what, what would somebody not know from an outsider view on that industry
1: well we're hiring <laughs> kids that are comfortable knocking doors and they're going out for the summer typically and given certain areas and going out and knocking those doors talking to people signing people up and then it's like hey your neighbor jill you signed up with the services and so then they're majorly hitting around that that property to get you know more installations
0: a little beachhead yeah. sally bot you should too yep got it okay so then uh a kid that like what's there's got to be a crazy high washout rate amongst yes. the em- employees i mean it's and it's not an employee it's not like yeah
1: so it's it. college college kids labor. yep so uh, yeah, two, three summers most. I mean, if they were successful their first summer, which some of them made some decent money. Yeah. 60 150 for the summer. Uh, took them through the rest of, you know, college, or they'd come back, you know, the next year until they were ready to go on to their career.
0: What do these kids go on to go do?
1: A number of things. <laughs>
0: I feel like that disposition, though. I feel like the disposition should of being be willing... They
1: cells because...
0: <laughs> yeah. Just
1: the willingness to go knock on somebody's door and have a conversation, right?
0: I, I concur. In a certain... <laughs> it's on a step up. When you think about like the gradient of like working in a clerk at a store versus having a paper route versus doing door-to-door sales, there's definitely something about it that requires some, some chutzpah, but some grit. A very specific skill set my One of my daughters started doing cookie sales door-to-door recently, and okay. it's been awesome. It was a summer thing. I think it'll ramp down during the school year, but it, I felt like we got in before some of those impulses and noise in the back of the brain of like, you shouldn't be doing this. You should be nervous. People don't want you here. That hasn't kicked in yet, so yeah. we're just in that hi i'm so and so would you like a cookie kind of phase and yeah i'm milking it and she's yeah yeah yeah. i mean there's obviously quite a bit of subsidy going on there in terms of making the cookies and walking to the houses but it's a good little push into entrepreneurship so
1: my 14 year old um car detailing
0: oh great so
1: he made his own business card nice he's also one not afraid to -to door-to-door you know snow plow your driveway but he created detail, whole business, and probably walked around and 200 cards. He's passing out and is just launching his own <laughs> detailing business. So that's been kind of fun, too.
0: It's really empowering, isn't yeah. when people yeah. just get that mindset of like, I can make money on my own without permission and just make something up, and all of a sudden people are handing me money.
1: Yep, yeah. and I and he really likes shoes. And <laughs> Mon's not going to buy
0: them all. Oh, perfect. <laughs> well, Air Jordan collection, yes. yeah, yeah, it's not coming out of the parent <laughs> <laughs> the subsidy at my house either. Yep. Okay, so how long was your career uh, doing that at that Uh, company?
1: It was about 22, so single mom at the time, really burnt out. I was traveling to all the different locations, and so decided to move back home, which was a little town called Vernal, Utah.
0: Mm, never heard of it.
1: Three hours east of Salt Lake City, 9,000 population. Mm. That's where I grew up. Wow. Yep, and so I was going to take some time off. And uh, that lasted about two weeks. Like, how clean can I get my house while my kid's at school? Sure. So I started consulting in a, in a real estate office, um, revamping that, that brokerage, and saw the property management opportunity.
0: When you say saw the property management opportunity, I don't think that's most people's experience. Like, oh. people broadly speaking in real estate are aware of property management. Most folks are not. Seeing the opportunity in property management, it's like okay. So you stay away from this part of the business. This is you know the thing that if things don't work out on the real estate side, worst case scenario, you could go do. What did you see per se that was attractive to you that made you want to gravitate in that direction as opposed to staying on the brokerage side?
1: Investors with you know no one to manage the properties, so asking like their specific real estate agent in the brokerage to try and help, and they're like, I don't really want to do this and then just the number of um, tenants were flooding in because we were in a market in that area very, it's a blue collar, Mm -hmm. it's a very up and down market, but it happened to be in a market that most places were probably like a six, 800 rent for our town home and we were getting 16 to 1800. And so I saw, I'm like, wow, that's a a lot of opportunity. A lot of places being built right now here you know the cap rates were extremely well, and so I started working. When on, on not only bringing it in, but working with like builders. Hey, let's let's rent this out on the front end, and then let's sell it turnkey to investors. And so that's that's how I got started with it. So
0: okay, so you like a hustle working with builders that that takes surprising Oh, I,
1: yeah, all, I didn't even have a website for probably three years. So I was twenty-four years old. What's a, what's a website? <laughs> None of that being built out. Um, but three months in, I'm 70 doors doing it all by myself. Finally, had uh, a friend of mine who's like, you, you need to hire. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: And finally, hired and then doubled in another three months to 150 doors and kept growing from there. So, our little 9,000 population managed about 350. 350
0: homes. You know, what always amazes me is the assumptions people make about how big you can or cannot grow in a small market. In my experience, the fact that somebody manages a thousand units in a city of a million people is not any kind of a reflection on ratios. Like you wouldn't port that math into a small city. Really, somebody managing a 1,000 doors in a given city could probably manage 5,000 doors if they were able to um, aggregate and cross whatever hurdles. But I've seen multiple players that have gotten to a decent size in a really tiny micro market. What are the dynamics that you see? What Maybe what are some of the advantages that wouldn't be obvious to somebody that's looking at a 9,000 population city?
1: Well, it's really community driven. So when we talk about relationships, I'm like, maybe like real to referral, like when you're building that out and you're talking about relationships, it is times a hundred in a small town, right? You've got to do right by everybody. You've got to have your culture, do what you say you're going to do because word of mouth is, is huge and that will either make or break you, but it can really spiral things up faster for you.
0: hmm. That makes sense. Word of mouth. Yep. What else? What, what else? Competition. <laughs> yeah. The baseline is just yes. fairly...
1: And a lot of competition pop up, but then would fizzle out after a couple of years. But yeah, they tend to be, you know, low competition.
0: So you feel like you kind of become the de facto standard and there's just more mon- momentum that builds off of that? Yep. All right. So you're in the property management game in this 9,000-person city. How long is that did, did that journey last for?
1: Oh, man, you're making me think. <laughs> so, oh, sorry, two, 2006. Then I think I went to San Jose in 2008, probably.
0: San Jose, California? hmm Wow, so you really, you got the... I wanted a bigger earth market. <laughs> okay, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, so opened up a couple locations as in San expansion. Jose.
0: Just as a pure expansion of what you were already doing?
1: Yeah, whole other entity, but yes. Yeah, just property management in San Jose. Had a couple locations there.
0: Now, how did you think about, of all the cities that you could go to, how did you wind up I in San Jose? I
1: didn't. I was 26 years old. Okay. Not enough thinking. Got it. That's probably why I'm on a panel
0: So <laughs> later this is really today, more about where you, is. Like, what seemed attractive to live? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yep. And just um, availability, too. It was part of a franchise at the time.
0: Got it. Yep. And so what did you find was the difference in managing...
1: Couldn't be more night and day difference right it's a learning curve of going from a low competition market to an extremely
0: high competition market. where we you're in nobody
1: yep which at the time san jose was probably one of the most competitive markets in the united states
0: which i assume you didn't know before you got there did not I got it. <laughs> okay all right
1: also how fun um california can be so like going through getting your broker's license it's not just i can't just hurry through this course there's You know, time frames that they'll before they'll even send you the next course when you complete it. And so there's a lot just a lot more red tape slow down to even launch something
0: there. And you join a franchise, which is somewhat opinionated because you've already been doing it for a minute.
1: I bought into a franchise. Oh, you acquired
0: a company that was a part of a franchise.
1: That brokerage that I was revamping, she owned the franchise. She wasn't doing anything with it. I was 24. I didn't quite understand <laughs> what a franchise was. i Being completely honest. Sure. But I bought into bought into that, and yeah, so expanded into San Jose.
0: So you bought the rights for for the territory, but yep. was there any units uh, associated with it? No. Got it. Okay. So I mean, it is somewhat similar. Then you bought you bought a system and a setup when you already had a couple of years of experience with property management. What about that seemed attractive to you, given that you weren't starting at square one?
1: So, I didn't buy the system in San Jose, just to clarify, in Bernal, but there was no system. I was the fourth franchise I in that system. Got it. So, built my own systems pretty much, working with a few other franchise partners, just to be clear.
0: Sounds like an important yes. point of clarity. It is. <laughs> Okay, got it. Well, and, one way or the other, you yep. chose to get it. And if it wasn't the systems, what, what, what was the draw to do anything w- with a franchise as opposed to just doing? I was 24.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, didn't realize really what I had or what I'd gotten got going to. For me, I just grew very quickly and wanted to get on to the next
0: territory. So this wasn't some master strategy situation. Nope. This am like figuring things out, rolling with
1: it. I'm in a 9,000 population. I want to go bigger. <laughs>
0: Got to go. Okay, okay. So then walk me yeah. through the first couple of years of being in San Jose and what that went like.
1: Yeah, so we still, we still launched a couple of things, and this is where people may not think I didn't, going into San Jose into winter. Like, we were literally launching off into the winter, August, September. We were getting our licenses all of that so it was you know into the holidays really by the time we were launching where that little town i came from doesn't slow down in the winter people are in their u-hauls with snow all around and they're and they're still moving and things are still happening san jose no (laughs) nope they're in their winter coats and it's 70 and i'm in my flip-flops like what what's the deal here (laughs) so some of that was a little bit you know it took us like four months to kind of Get our feet under us mm-hmm. there, so it
0: was a little the slower. The seasonality rollout. was more pronounced.
1: Um, yep, a little slower rollout. Um, just demographics there, <laughs> just getting you know name name recognition into the into the area, and so it was it was a little slower. I would say we were probably closer to a year before we hit our hundred, hundred, oh. hundred twenty five doors.
0: Okay, I mean maybe it's slower than you'd like, but that's yes. not that's not a complete disaster to get. For it to take a year to get 120 units yeah. okay so how long how long were you in San Jose for
1: so so where acquisition comes in mm-hmm. <laughs> We're in San Jose maybe two two years trying to think how I don't think I was 28 probably a little less than two years and so got the opportunity to um, to buy a company in Seattle Washington and so, not huge, but I saw some opportunity there because there are about sixty doors, and there was a bank-owned contract that was uh, in play. Are you? Yep. So super excited about it. <laughs> I'm the type of type of person that I just put everything in a U-Haul when we moved from Bernal to San Jose. Figured it out. Literally did the same thing. San Jose overnight over to Seattle. <laughs> Uh,
0: i'm picking that up it sounds like you like some transience some newness
1: yeah my husband and i were actually getting married um in san jose and did our due diligence on our honeymoon
0: isn't that (laughs) what every couple longs for sarah
1: (laughs) brian you're very very patient with me (laughs) (laughs) So did a few days of, of some due diligence. I knew the gentleman did not do as much due diligence as I should have. I'm very good at due diligence and helping clients through.
0: What are you really missing? What are
1: you missing on that? A lot of things, just yep. not diving deep enough. Just taking things was more like meet and greet and not going deep enough into what the company um, was doing. And we were going to retain two staff members. And so... Um, You know, spent a couple of days on our honeymoon away from that office, went back to San Jose, packed up, headed over to Seattle. The day we showed up and closed, staff did not show up.
0: Mm. You just quit immediately.
1: Yep. They knew the writing on the wall. There was so much on fire. (laughs) And so that was a couple fun months of getting that all under control.
0: When you say that your due diligence process and perspective has changed and matured, what does it look like now? If you were approaching that same scenario over again, what, what's kind of your process to due diligence? I mean,
1: sixty doors. I still probably it's not going to be as deep as if you're evaluating 600. three, yeah, six hundred. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little closer look. Like, what do the work orders look like? You know. <laughs> What has been their turnaround time on that? Do they have a bunch of outstanding work orders? I'm going to interview the staff as much as I can. I'm just going to look for some of these these red flags that would cause an issue. I'm going to dive into their um, trust account. Any diagnostic issues? Um, if I find that that's one of the areas that is um, in our industry has a big problem, trust accounts.
0: There can be a lot of skeletons loot, yep. has it?
1: Yep, and so just going through that, I'm going to take a much deeper look at the client base like how how long have these clients been in there did they bring a bunch on just recently um, is there a certain number of you know a client that owns a huge portion of the portfolio is that a risk you know to to purchase this and so just diving into some of those those details
0: you mentioned work orders that one's interesting to me is that simply yeah. getting at it just being a proxy for overall service quality
1: it tends to be yep yep if they don't have their work orders in a good shape and responding to those. And you've got a bunch that are outstanding. You've got really unhappy people and unhappy that turns over to clients. Unhappy too. tenant moves out and your work orders are already a mess and you're not getting this type of stuff done on a quickly basis. then that's affecting everything in the portfolio.
0: Now, what's fixable and what's not? Typically, buyers are looking for a deal that has some hair on it. a situation where they know I can come in here and I'm adding A hundred bucks in RPU over 12 months, et cetera. So what's the 80-20 on what kind of dysfunctions are attractive to you and which are repellent?
1: Yeah, so, I I mean, Google reviews, if that is just tanked and not not looking good for a long time, that's going to be hard to uh, overcome
0: Oh, a handicap, just a handicap.
1: Yes, um, trust account deficit, just way
0: DRE situation.
1: Yeah, and it's just way too short, like... Maybe they were going to seller finance for you, but if you've got to come up with 300000 that makes that seller finance still look a lot less attractive. If they've got some significant shortage there, it's got to be made whole for it all to be transferred over to you. And so there's got to be something something worked out there where those ones are just so far in trouble that just that piece alone, you just mm-hmm. know you're going to want to dive
0: a lot deeper into the rest of what the business is what the business has going on. Tell me more about the trust accounting piece. That's obviously an area where some uncomfortable and ugly things do happen. You hear stories, or rather, I should say, you don't hear stories. Sometimes people just disappear, people that have been in the industry, and all of a sudden, they're gone, and you kind of assume something bad happened there, and come to find out, in some cases, it just turned out that there was a million bucks missing, and nobody was ever gonna be able to get out of that. What advice or feedback or, or what errors do you see folks making that slowly add up? Like it's never rarely do I see that it was a, a wholesale overnight situation a million bucks went missing. It seems like it happens it's a over time. Pain problem. <laughs> what do you what do you see in that zone of the yeah. business?
1: So I find that a lot of the times um, when somebody gets into property management, uh, maybe their strong point is not accounting. It's quite often in our industry that it's not. And so they're they're out there, they're doing everything they can, they're wearing, you know, all 10 hats in this, in this business. And so accounting tends to come last. Mm-hmm. Like, as long as I get my owners paid, as long as I get my vendors paid, oh, I'm gonna get to reconciliation next week. Then that turns into, I'm gonna get it done next month. So far behind, I don't even know who to call to help me at this point. Um, that's one, mm, <laughs> so uh, just, that's... so they're not catching all the small,
0: it becomes insurmountable, yep. snowball.
1: Yeah. So then you look out on diagnostics and you've got a hundred, 120 di- diagnostic issues, right? Somebody's got to go through even somebody that's well versed in diagnostics and fixing those things. That's, that's between four and five an hour. And so when you get up, so not only do they have this big, huge problem, but then you've got a seven to $10,000 bill coming your way to, to resolve this issue. That's one piece. <laughs> Staff can help. <laughs> you know, putting things incorrectly, you know, journal entries not being done, those that snowballs all of that. And then just flat out fraud. And, you know, I've gone and consulted, taken a look at things and found, you know, a bookkeeper running money through over a five year period, mm-hmm. but taking $30,000 from the business. So that trust account was $30,000, $30,000 short.
0: Heartbreaking stuff. Yeah. And, my experience again limited because most of this stuff is not being talked about but the limited that i have intersected with i've observed there's a lot of shame that's tied up with it like i really need to talk about this and i also feel like i really do not want to talk about this yeah
1: that's it's embarrassing you're you're working your butt off to try and get this company launched and then you've just got this issue that you just a lot of times don't even know who to call and help you with it and you're just trying to back monday and something's on fire and something over here is flooding and you've got you're running out for those issues and so that's how it just keeps just keeps snowballing best of intentions it's not it's not most the time um bad intentions with it it's just not being able to get a grasp on it
0: what would you say to an owner that says i'm not accounting minded is that disqualifying how much accounting does the owner need to know themselves as opposed to working with the trusted advisor what's the balance there
1: um you should know the basics you should be able to read your reports so like the diagnostics for instance like in that folio pull that up look at it once a week before regardless if you're running your owner draws or um somebody else is running them there should be no line items on your diagnostics before you start running that report if you're gonna do that the correct way. I also suggest looking at all the owner statements before you run your owner draws and making sure, you know, that's a great checks and balances. Anything double entered, what, like, oh, that number looks big, why? (laughs) Why on this owner statement when it normally doesn't? And so that little checks and balances before you get going with things to try and find some of those mistakes. But at least understand also, even if you're having a third party company, um, reconcile your accounts just because it's reconciled doesn't mean it's truly reconciled so things can still they'll still float over month after month after month especially if they're sitting on the diagnostic and don't ever get it resolved fully um, through the reconciliation and so a lot of people don't understand what they need to be looking for on their trust account period
0: I think one thing that some people don't realize it's more there's more awareness but there are experts that you can call specifically for cleanup yep. not cheap it's priced accordingly but there are people you can call not to be your daily ongoing accountant but just when there's yeah. a blow-up
1: you've got these five items for like why are they here how did they get here what was entered wrong what move out was done incorrectly what was transferred over and never transferred over in the actual bank account um, so somebody that can help you dig in to see what really happened
0: yeah those are invaluable resources when folks find themselves working with any vendor in general yeah. what feedback or advice or counsel do you have for thinking about working with vendors vendor management There's really two sides of it You have like the in industry folks then you have the boots on the ground what what do you have to say about finding great vendors
1: well i guess knowledgeable so referrals are great um, i know when you're having problems it's hard to reach out to people like hey i'm having these issues i need i need somebody that can help me with this that knows um, knows what they're doing because a referral is going to be great and then somebody that you feel comfortable with that's going to help you take the time to dig in there and and do it correctly
0: what about boots on the ground vendors the folks that are handling all of your work orders that you're outsourcing stuff to et cetera, what what have you um, seen has been like the best practice for you to make sure that you're actually able to retain competent folks that are doing a good job? What I've seen is that there's this dichotomy between giving too little work to the point that you just don't matter, you're irrelevant, or giving so much work that you actually... right Exactly. You implode somebody else's business unintentionally. What's the 80-20 there?
1: That's tough. (laughs) Because there's more to it than that. Like. Also take into account how fast you're growing. If you can actually look at some of this from the front end of like, okay, we're right here. I'm at a slow, steady pace. So I can slowly be at a steady pace with somebody like that. Mm-hmm. But maybe I kick up for some reason on lead sources, hired a rockstar BDM to where- Land
0: 200 units.
1: Yep, acquisition, um, all those things. Then you're gonna have to have a real, like a real conversation that's going to affect their business. And so you have to sit down and say, okay, what does this realistically look like? Just the onboarding of an acquisition is gonna tie up everybody. And then if you're splitting with that vendor of anybody else's stuff going on too, it's, it's gotta be realistic. Okay, you're bringing this on, how long is this truly gonna take? You're bringing on 200 units, can we take it down to bringing on 30 to 50 at a time over a month and a half period? Like, how can we make that work?
0: Yeah. Obviously, there's just some practical conversations yep. and some QA, paying attention, checking in. Yep.
1: Even you know, larger investors that are looking for a property management company, mm-hmm. they're going to respect you so much more if if you sit down and have that conversation. Here's what this realistically looks like onboarding of our timetable to do this versus just give us them all right now and then it, we're all stumbling around communication's getting dropped, ball's getting dropped all over the place, and so just being upfront, they're
0: gonna respect that a lot more. So we paused on your journey at the point of Seattle. Okay. How long are you in the Seattle market for? How does that go?
1: Um, well, I kept, I kept all the offices mm-hmm. as I was going along. Yep, so we're three. Um, before I moved on to the next one, we, we were in Seattle for probably a year, and then I got a call for my daughter. We were adopting. And so um, we got picked, and we'd always kept a house in Utah, because adoption laws there. So we immediately moved that weekend, within two days, back to our Utah house, kept Seattle. Um, she was born two months early, so spent a little time there, four to six months, and then um, went from Utah to our next location, <laughs> uh, Greenville, South Carolina.
0: You got another call again. Somebody <laughs> called you and said, "How did you I wind up know. in Greenville?"
1: We we researched like liked how uh, that market looked.
0: Uh, so this is the this was the first thoughtful decision yes, of
1: thoughtful, very thoughtful. So um, my husband, he's now a senior software engineer, but he worked in the business um, with me. And after about the second location and hiring third party vendors, we started doing all of our SEO, all of our pay per click, all of our marketing um, in in house. And so taking a deep dive on was this a low, medium, high competition market? You know, what's you know, what's the traffic on the top five keywords? All all of that taking into account uh, before making the move to, to South Carolina.
0: All right. So you're in four markets by now. Surely okay. at this point, you're having the conversation around back office centralization versus doing everything on the ground, departmental versus portfolio. Well, that actually
1: happened after the first office.
0: Got it. Okay. so what what is what what did you learn and what what opinions do you hold about that paradigm in general?
1: So there's boots on the ground activities and everything else can be centralized.
0: Where where was your back office housed?
1: So it was actually in Utah. Got A it. little teeny town.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: It was easy for us to hire. Um, and before remote team members were really a thing, we were utilizing remote team members and some of these other third party um, companies as far as like data entry
0: so did that also influence how you thought about getting into new markets given that there was less infrastructure to drop in
1: yes yeah and we moved to start all of our offices and so personally grew besides one acquisition personally grew them to about between 70 to 100 units and then we would staff before we'd think about doing anything else staff and grow and then move on to the next but accounting maintenance a lot of the customer service, all of that was all of that was centralized.
0: So you did this research, it's a more thoughtful decision. Did Greenville end up being, did you find that it was as good as you were hoping it was? Yep,
1: I'm actually taking a look at going back at the moment.
0: <laughs> okay, well let's wrap but, up on the initial yeah. journey in Greenville. How yeah. long are you in that market for?
1: So we were in that market for about three, almost four years. So some different things were, were going on for us there. Um, we'd started an Amazon business, so we are starting to diversify, um, selling other people's products, doing really well at it, and actually taking a trip to China, to the Canton Fair, looking at private labeling, um, all of that kind of stuff out of out of Greenville. Um, so we were taking a look at that along with, you know, everything that we had going on. And then we just had um, a family catastrophe. Uh, we lost our 17-year-old son mm. in 2017. Mm. And so that caused us to pivot and shift, um, sell our businesses. All of them. We, yep, all of our businesses and take some time off. Mm. Um,
0: Makes sense.
1: Yeah, some things around that that I don't think a lot of businesses prepare for of just life circumstances that can be thrown at you. Um, Having it lined out in your will. Um, We're in an industry that people can take over. So an interim ceo have a couple of those people's people lined up talk to them um, i was lucky enough to have people in my network to step in immediately and take over my operations until we could um, take care of everything that we needed to but a lot of that is not talked about up front you know if you're the one running the business and your spouse is maybe at home and not involved in the business and something happens to you what is going to happen to your business you know do you have somebody that can come in and and buy the whole thing out, or somebody that can step into to run the business for a certain number of days until, um, until emotions are calmed down and decisions can be, can be made around that business.
0: So would you characterize this as a d- distressed sale? How, how much time did you have prior to actually being able to exit the positions?
1: Yeah, um, a couple of them we had sold off right before because we were getting ready to jump into private labeling uh, product.
0: So there was already Um, some transition happening.
1: There was some transition, definitely distressed (laughs) if I could go back. (laughs) Um, From my standpoint, I wanted our clients to be taken care of, and that was my biggest, biggest thing to where we pretty much walked away. Like, you're going to take care of the clients. Okay, we don't need a whole lot from this.
0: All right, so you exit the positions in all these companies. What year is this?
1: 2017.
0: 2017, and... You're done, you're out, you have this cataclysmic life event. That's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. It's unusual for any entrepreneur to have a moment where there's nothing going on. People talk about acquisitions, it's exciting, but it's not the norm to sell a business, to be in between, to have nothing mm-hmm. going on, and this is this is compounding for everything else going in your life. To be honest with you, that sounds like a, a, an invitation to um, a pretty heavy, um, moment, like existential crisis is what I think of, I assume will happen at some point in the future if I was to sell. It seems like, in many ways, that's actually kind of the default for entrepreneurs who are have this, like, compulsive thing in their brain that is both greatness and also can be their downfall, and to have no outlet for it. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what that period was like?
1: That, honestly, I... It was not probably the norm of what other people would go through. I mean, losing a child, I just couldn't function for two years. My husband became a software engineer at that point. Kept his mind very busy with that. Mind you, we still have two other children. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Knew I could not stay in Greenville, which was where we were at. We decided if we are gonna live anywhere, we've always wanted to live by the ocean. Went to Florida. Uh, Turned into a disaster. (laughs) Really? Yeah, a whole a whole lot of other reasons. Um, just, obviously, our emotions were just not mm-hmm. not making great decisions because everything was coming from an emotional...
0: Yeah, it's right. ...high
1: emotional standpoint. And so, um, so one of my very best friends was like, come move to Reno, Nevada. Come be by us, we can, you know, start whenever you want to start or not, take time off, but be, be by somebody that can, you know, help, help out. So moved to Reno, Nevada, um, ended up having a conversation with a gentleman that wanted me to launch a commercial real estate brokerage. And so then I kind of stepped back into the game, um, working for him for a year, launching his commercial real estate brokerage, really liked that, um, did that for about a year and a half. And then uh, my husband's uh, father started to have some health issues. And so that's what ultimately took us back to Utah, where I never thought we'd live again, but we're <laughs> we're back there. Um, enjoying it. My youngest brother wanted to start a property management company back where I originally started, Vernal, Utah, and so begged us to come out there, helped him launch that uh, right as COVID hit. And so got him all launched. Vernal, Utah was a great place to be during COVID. It is like it didn't happen. (laughs) It it was its own little bubble for sure. Um, And then I just started getting back into consulting. So... Nothing I ever advertised for, just word of mouth. Just kept super busy um, consulting clients between the property management space, brokerage, and uh, e-commerce. And so that kept me busy for, for a number of years. Still keeps me busy.
0: So we had crossed paths with some common clients. What type of consulting were you doing? There's so many areas of the business to focus. Where did you specialize?
1: So I can pretty much do it all. I don't know why my brain works <laughs> the way that it does, but I can go in and find the inefficiencies. So what's going wrong in the in the operations, put things in place to fix that. So not just in the PM world, but all the different types of businesses. Dental supply company was one. Um, take a look at could be problems with staff, helping them staff restructure, put people in the right seats. hire. maybe they don't have enough staff going on with where they're trying to grow. Um, helped with some supply, like, issues with the company, pretty much all of it. Like, even, I'm not, I'm not, like, an accountant, that's not, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I can take a look at the books and usually find the holes, and so that's where I've discovered, you know, a lot of fraud, and sometimes it's not always money, like, sometimes it was staff members that were taking trips a couple times a year through, through the company books for personal trips, or just little things like that.
0: So all of this suite of skills presumably is what led Nate to, who heads up the Key Renter franchise, to reach out to you to talk about doing some work together. Tell me about your, your role and the capacity that you're working in there now.
1: Yeah, so it was uh, Matt Zalk.
0: Sharp uh, operator, previous yeah. guest.
1: Yes, yeah. So Matt Zalk had actually reached out to me because um, he was doing an acquisition. So I helped do some consulting on an acquisition. And then he introduced me to Nate, and so we just talked about, you know, some of the needs of of their company and with their with their franchise partners. And so I started doing a lot of um, consulting, uh, business coaching for them. So I I've, I've ran in the past for other groups of um, group coaching, and so we brought a lot of that in just to just to help elevate um, those businesses, and then one on ones uh, with those franchise partners as needed. So whether that's growth, adding doors. Figuring out things that way, staffing, trying to decide the next move. You know, it can get to 50 doors, 100 doors, 150. What does that look like? Um, You know, what a franchise partner wanting to have a maintenance division and taking a look is that really the right move right now? And and digging in deep in all those kind of areas.
0: What do you have to say about the challenges of being a franchisor? My observation is people are coming in the door, high expectations. They're new, don't know much about it. That's why they chose a franchisor. It also means that franchisors can get mired in the constant perpetual needs of the newbies, younger, earlier franchisees, and in some ways get somewhat disconnected from folks that figure it out, get large, get big, and then in some cases outstrip the needs of what the franchisor is able to support what do you see as being like uh, the way to navigate through that specific dichotomy
1: well a lot of uh, training on the front end is kind of where the basics start so i i think of it as this is nothing with key renters sarah durbin personal opinion um like zero to 25 doors that's like your college education that's a lot that that is happening in that zero to 25 doors and then depending on you know how fast you're growing and growing from there but your 100 doors, your 200 doors, your 300 doors, five, a thousand, two, that all along those journeys there's there's problems that arise. You always need a coach, somebody that's been in the industry to help take a look when you're in the one in the day-to-day you don't always see like what the real issues are. Maybe everything was humming along perfectly and you had your lead simple processes built out perfect and it worked great till you hit about 450 doors and they're like why wh- why is this breaking down what like staff issues like what's breaking down here because your business needs to change a little bit most likely depending on the growth that's coming in or um but you just didn't look the same at 300 as you can at 500 and so you've got to stop at some critical points in your business and decide had people call me i'm at 1400 doors and i was making more at 1100 doors <laughs> you got to evaluate is the, you know, is the growth really where you want to go and you can't just stop at a certain point because you won't be making the money that you were hoping to with the growth. You need to make sure that you understand where you're trying to get to next.
0: Let's talk more about diagnosis. What I commonly see is that the felt experience of many operators looks something like the idea of task overwhelm. There's just a lot going on and it's kind of a big cloud of tasks, most of which I'm familiar with, and individually I know how to do, and these are clients that I know, but in aggregate, the thing looks like something unwieldy, and it's very much not clear what the next thing to do is to actually make progress in getting your arms around this. How do you walk people through finding out the specific actionable thing they could change to reduce this sense of task overwhelm?
1: So that's that's a loaded question. Am I like, are we one person, 50 doors? Are we 300
0: doors? Well, There's different. I, I think here's what's great about not specifying that. Okay. I think that at the highest level, if we abstract out the specific circumstances of this market, this many doors, this asset class, we can talk about, about it generally. I think that's what I'm getting at, okay. like in the meta kind of general sense. So here's the general sense,
1: reactive versus proactive. And that tends to pile up everything when you are being reactive versus proactive that's making your phone calls double triple and all those all those little things like that and then i tend to find like people don't know which hat they're wearing like maybe you hired somebody and you haven't quite given all of the duties over to them there's not clear expectations Um, people don't time block if you get 10 work orders let's just say in a day you could choose two times to send those out 10 o'clock, so everything coming in in the morning, you can dispatch five, six work orders. It takes you about the same amount of time as that one work order. Then hold everything else that's coming in till the end of the day to re-dispatch that at 3 o'clock so that you're not just interrupting your entire day to stop every
0: Selectively ignore yeah. until the right time.
1: Yes, because it's, it's, it's not likely your vendor, if it's a normal maintenance work order, it's not likely the vendor is going to go out that same day going to be the next day or the day after that depending on what the work order is and and then um, also preparing so that part of that proactive at the end of the day before you go home no matter how long the day has been you should sit down and you should know exactly what tomorrow looks like in our industry stuff is always going to pop up I'm not (laughs) I'm not saying that's not going to happen there should be chunks of your day to deal with emergencies but when you sit down at your desk or any staff member sits down at their desk, I know what I need to hit the ground running doing. I'm not taking a half an hour trying to take a look at everything. I, I know what, I'm, what I need to do for the day. Pick it up, get it done, and eat the, eat the frog first. Deal with the thing that's causing you the mm-hmm. most stress and heartache mm-hmm. so that you can move on a little more relaxed in the day too and not have so much high, high stress.
0: Any other examples that come to mind when this that would illustrate this paradigm of reactive versus proactive?
1: um yeah certain staff members doing it all and not delegating so thinking and not just staff members the owner has a company like i can do it better it's going to take me more time to give it to this person or train this person and so they keep holding on to stuff longer than they should Mm -hmm. and they're just not they're not getting to it all so it's just snowballing
0: which is interesting if you think about that idea i can do it faster on a short enough time horizon it's true like in the next. 24 hours, you're right, you can do it faster. If we expand the time horizon to a year, no, training them would be way faster. In my way of thinking, that is the quintessential example of short-term thinking, that thought where, yes, you're right, but it's entirely about the timeline of which you're looking at.
1: Yeah, or you're at 100 doors, and you get to 150, 200, it's just gonna keep crumbling more and more and more because of that short-term.
0: Talk to me about training and recruiting. At times I hear some fatalism from folks when they're talking about staff, who they can bring, the quality of the people, something like, well, it's just property management, you know, we're not going to be recruiting these brilliant all-stars, et cetera, and that strikes me as a very self-fulfilling type prophecy when it comes to setting expectations for what you should expect from your staff. What's the advice or the encouragement that you give people?
1: And as far as recruiting, hiring, bringing people on?
0: As far as how much you can reasonably expect from your staff in terms of how uh, autonomous that, you know, do I have to stay here handholding or is it reasonable for me to expect that I could get to the point where I have a fair bit of time freedom?
1: I mean, higher level, you own the company. Your staff are never going to work as hard as you do.
0: Never going to care quite as much. Yes.
1: You're going to... bring on some very caring people, but expectation wise there. Um, another expectation um, in when empowering your people. So you've got somebody on, and a lot of times we forget to empower them. And so a couple of ways of that is like after you've gone through training, and you feel like you've trained them and maybe train them again, when they come to you with the question, instead of just answering it, how would you handle this? Let them tell you how you would handle this. And for us uh, control people (laughs) out there, um, if it is good enough and it solves the issue, it may not be how you would have handled it. And your answer in your mind might be way better. But if if it is good enough, let them run with it and let them take it. And then another thing that I used to do um, to empower, we're working with humans. We're going to make mistakes. I don't care who you are. You're going to make a mistake. Let's own our mistakes, but let's empower our people to resolve those mistakes. And so I always had a certain threshold of money. So whatever that is for you or the level of the person working for you, 150, 500 bucks. If you can make this situation, if you can resolve this situation, I don't even need to hear about it. Just resolve it.
0: Give them the authority to actually make it happen.
1: You you have these funds that you can utilize for for these issues. Take care of it.
0: Sir, if there's one thing you could change in the industry, what would it be?
1: More education that we as property managers exist to the do-it-yourself landlords, more professionals and putting us up on more of a professional platform.
0: Hmm. Okay. So that that's interesting because that's like an end state. That's an outcome that is downstream of what? What comes to mind for me is a stronger belief and signal to the DIY person that they could act that this would actually be. A profitable endeavor that they make the headache go away thing people get that it's implicit in the promise of outsourcing but the idea that the property could actually perform better with a property manager in the picture that's not a pervasive thought in general people aren't having that thought and you see that with with what's driving the choices that are being made what's the best case that somebody running a great shop could make about the upside of working with a professional property manager on a dollars and cents basis?
1: Uh, Yeah, the do-it-yourself landlord, they tend to not raise rent. They don't renew their leases. Um, They don't screen their tenants because they go off of emotional decisions that cause them problems later. They don't go through their properties. they let it go years and have no idea the condition of the inside of their home. Um, They're not doing proactive maintenance. aren't even signing leases <laughs> um and they do and frankly they don't stay up on landlord tenant law and all the obligations that they have in owning that rental property and and renting it And that's just a few a few things
0: so there there's accruing an invisible debt mm-hmm. a debt of a risk liability and the risk management piece really is essential yep. uh, aspect for the pm the pm has the ability to see and surface risk that is invisible to non-professional operators i think that's what i hear you saying yeah that makes a ton of sense and i appreciate you coming on i'm glad to get to hear a little bit about your story and your background i'm excited to keep up with your journey in the industry
1: thank you for having me
0: we'll leave it there all right peace that's it for this episode hope you enjoyed it you can check out other episodes along the way If you're watching this on YouTube, appreciate a subscribe. Any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, would really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.